Good morning. Don't worry, I am not going to preach this morning in Greek for two really good reasons. First, I can't. And second, unless the gift of interpretation fell upon every individual in this sanctuary, you wouldn't understand me. But I am going to start with a comic blunder that illustrates the problems with language barriers. When I was a student living in Paris, I rented a room from a family who had two young boys. I used to take the boys on various adventures in Paris, particularly the Museum of Man, where we got to look at all the skeletons. And occasionally, I babysat them. So one evening when I was babysitting them, after we had dinner, I said to one of the boys, veux-tu du dessert? Uh, and I thought I had said, do you want some dessert? But the younger boy looked at me and declared, je ne mange pas de sable, I don't eat sand. <laughs> Apparently, I had actually asked him if he wanted desert. To this day, I have never confused dessert, de dessert, with desert or dessert. All of this leads to our passage from Acts 2, where language barriers were supernaturally overcome by the power of the Spirit. Here we see one of the most amazing events in the church's history. We find 120 believers waiting together for the Spirit, just as Jesus had commanded them. We just read in John's Gospel that Jesus told his disciples that it was to his advantage, actually he says this earlier than today's passage, it was to their advantage that he left them physically because he was going to send the paraclete, which is another name for the Holy Spirit. And in our reading today, we see that Jesus is preparing his disciples when he breathes upon them and commands them to receive the Holy Spirit. Some scholars actually refer to this as John's Pentecost. So there was a clear expectation on the part of the disciples and those who were with them that the Spirit would come upon them in a new way. And I love what Mother Amanda said earlier. Can you imagine what they were thinking that day? No matter what they thought, they could not have been prepared for what was going to happen. In addition to this, there was a general expectation that the last days would be accompanied by an increase in the Spirit's power. So this is why Peter so quickly looks at what's happening and goes to Joel too. In the immediate context of this event for Pentecost, we have the Festival of Weeks, which was celebrated 50 days after Passover. And this festival celebrated the gathering of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. How appropriate could this be? Jerusalem was packed with Jews from all over the world. And the Pentecost, this Pentecost would celebrate first fruits of a very different kind. In fact, at the end of Acts 2, we read that 3,000 Jews repented, called upon the name of the Lord, and were baptized. That is an amazing first fruit. These were the first fruits of a harvest that is still going on around the world 2,000 years after this event. And more immediately, if you look carefully at the place names that are listed in verse 9 in Acts 2, you don't have to do this right now, but if you go to 1 Peter 1, you're going to see many of those place names repeated. And I think the best explanation for that is that the Jews who were assembled in Pentecost in recorded in Acts 2 were converted and went back and brought the gospel to those places. So let's survey this remarkable event. As the disciples are waiting, the Spirit comes upon them like wind and fire, 
recalling the way that God often appeared in the Old Testament. Think about Exodus 19 with the appearance, the theophany, the appearance of God on Mount Sinai with fire and wind. But we're told here that these were like tongues like flames that came upon the disciples and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were able to proclaim the magnificent acts of God in Jesus Christ in the native tongues of the visitors who were there in Jerusalem. I love the comment about them being Galileans. It's like they're saying, aren't these guys hillbillies? What are they doing speaking our language? In fact, this was such an astonishing event. As we already read, some people thought they must have been drunk. I don't know. I don't think drunk people speak unknown languages, but whatever. But the disciples were not drunk. Peter clearly understood this event in terms of Joel 2, which predicted that the Spirit will be poured out on God's people in the last days. We're going to come back to this very important point and some of the key things that come out of Joel 2. But first, we need to go back to Genesis 11, to the Tower of Babel. And actually, we need to go further back than that. As I like to say, it always goes back to the garden. There we read that the first humans were given the command to be fruitful and to multiply and have dominion over God's good creation. This would have extended God's reign and shalom through those who bore his image outward from the garden throughout the rest of the world. As humans inhabited diverse parts of the earth, there would have been a natural diversification in terms of food, clothing, customs, and shared narratives. And additionally, we know this around the world today, as people groups become farther and farther separated from each other, their language begins to diversify as well. So this spread of humanity throughout the world would have resulted in a God-glorifying diversification. This is why the Tower of Babel is such a disaster it's not just that there was a huge building project out in the desert. Some or you might be thinking about Las Vegas. No, it was much, much worse than that. Instead of spreading the reign and the peace of God throughout the world, in Genesis 11, we find human beings congregating together to build a tower to God on their own terms for their own glory. This is in direct defiance of what God commanded in the garden to extend his glorious rule throughout the earth. But Genesis 4 through 11 shows us clearly that when fallen humanity congregates together, they usually end up killing each other. So God graciously confuses their languages and scatters them. It's his mercy so that humanity will not self-destruct. From this point onward, the problems that are caused by different languages and customs will only intensify. Fast forward to the first century and consider the huge chasm between Jews and Gentiles, between the Romans and everyone else. The Romans considered everyone outside the Roman Empire to be barbarians. So the gospel comes into a very fractured world. Languages divide, cultural differences re result in discrimination. So the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost represents a real reversal of the tragedy of Babel. It's not that we can all now speak languages, all the languages of the world, that would be lovely, or that there is one common language. Instead, we're no longer divided by human language. 
One way to understand this is the amazing reality of the real fellowship that we can have with other believers that does not depend on language. I have think of many times in my life when I have had deep, deep fellowship with believers when we have not had a language in common. I experienced this in Romania in before the fall of the Iron Curtain uh, with believers where we prayed together and uh, studied together and, again, felt this amazing sense of fellowship. I received it also when I was in Korea and believers prayed for me. I felt that deep encouragement, even though we didn't speak the same language. So I really believe that what Pentecost is showing us is that the Spirit overcomes any human barrier. And this can't be explained in merely human terms. But also we experience this same presence of the Spirit when language is not a factor. Often our closest bonds are to believers, to brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes even closer than the bonds that we have with biological relatives. And that can only be explained through the Spirit. I also want to talk a little bit more about this, but before I do, I want to focus a bit now on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And often we talk about being filled with the Spirit or having the Spirit dwell within us individually. So he dwells in me, he dwells in you, he dwells in you, and all the rest of you. I'm not excluding anyone here. At one level, this is correct. But at another level, this idea of the Spirit dwelling within us individually can obscure a glorious truth. To think of this individually can almost seem like we're all little bubbles and that we're filled with the Spirit, but we're not necessarily connected to each other. But Acts 2 presents a very different image. Here we find the body of Christ assembled together in an organic unity, a body, and the Spirit comes and dwells within this organic body. I believe that Luke intends us to see a parallel between the baptism of the Spirit in Acts and the baptism of Jesus in Luke 3. There, we read that the Spirit descended upon Jesus in a physically visible way, as a dove, to show those who were watching that everything Jesus did in his public ministry would be through the power of the Holy Spirit. So here, too, in Acts 2, Luke draws an intentional parallel between Jesus' baptism and Pentecost. Here, we have the body of Christ assembled together and the Holy Spirit descends upon them in a physically visible way with tongues like fire to show those who are watching that everything the body of Christ does is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the body is the embodied continuation of Jesus' incarnation. Throughout Acts, we see that the followers of Jesus perform some of the exact same miracles that Jesus did, such as healing the crippled or resuscitating the dead, in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this power continues to work in the body of Christ today. So as the Spirit dwells within the body, this organic body of believers, we, um, we as believers, when we become believers, are placed into this body of Christ where the Spirit dwells. So yes, it's true that the Spirit dwells in each one of us, but rather than having lots of little bubbles filled with the Spirit floating around, 
This is one huge, really huge bubble into which we are placed. A bubble of the Spirit that extends back to Pentecost and all around the world today. So we are placed into something so much greater than we could ever imagine. This is one aspect of Pentecost. But there's another amazing aspect of being filled with the Spirit that I want to focus on. This is sometimes called the democratization of the Spirit. Now, we know from the passage, or notice from the passage in Joel 2 that's quoted in Acts, this is what Peter is quoting, that um, this citation from Joel emphasizes that the Spirit will be poured out on all of God's sons and daughters, all men and women, all people. This is a radical promise. In the Old Testament, we find that the Spirit comes upon individuals for a specific purpose and for a limited time such as the Spirit coming upon a prophet. The Spirit came upon these individuals, but he did not dwell within them. That was not possible until the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why the parallel between the Spirit coming upon Jesus at his baptism and the Spirit coming upon the body of Christ in Acts 2 is so important. Because of Jesus' resurrection, now the Spirit can actually dwell within the body of a Christ in a way that had not been possible before. Now, if we were to stop with Acts 2, we might conclude that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all believers was simply an event in church history, where a bunch of Galilean country folk could suddenly speak uh, languages that they hadn't known before. We could conclude something like, that was then, but this is now. That's why I love the lectionary because the lectionary so marvelously combines this passage, John 20, and 1 Corinthians 12. It's no wonder why these passages are linked. 1 Corinthians 12, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And I know I say that a lot, but I like to say it's okay to have lots of favorite children. (laughs) The passage begins by showing us that we can only affirm the truth that Jesus is the Lord through the Holy Spirit. This is one of the primary roles of the Spirit, to point to and to affirm the truth about Jesus. Notice then that Paul talks about the diversity of gifts, diversity of ministries, diversity of spiritual activities, but that there is one triune God. In verses 4 through 6, he specifically references the Spirit, the Lord, God. The Spirit, Lord Jesus, God the Father. Here we're told that each believer has a manifestation of the Spirit. We read about the wonderful reality that there is a glorious diversity of these manifestations of the Spirit that are all beautifully unified in the body of Christ. Now, we typically call these manifestations spiritual gifts. And the rest of the passage from 1 Corinthians 12 lists many examples of them. Notice that not one person has all the gifts, and notice that every single person has some gifts. This is so incredibly encouraging. Paul goes on to liken this to our physical bodies, where every part plays a vital role in our proper functioning. We all know that whenever one part of our body is not functioning correctly, that's the only thing we can think about. So we might not think about our feet that much, but if our foot falls asleep and we can't walk, we're suddenly thinking about our feet a lot. The same is true for spiritual gifts. 
Every single gift is vital, and the entire body of Christ suffers when a gift is not properly functioning. I am sometimes asked by people, uh, students included, uh, how we can find our spiritual gifts. And I love this question. I like to start by saying 12-12-4-4, okay? That is not some gematria or numerology. It's just to help us to remember the four passages in scripture that talk about spiritual gifts. So 12-12, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 give us lists of different kinds of gifts. 4-4, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, help us to understand a bigger picture of how the gifts help the body to function and uh, properly. So I like to start with these passages. Now, there are also numerous spiritual gift inventories. I can't remember any right now to tell you about, but they're out there. Um, And these can be helpful, kind of a better way to understand maybe what some of our gifts are. But I think that there's a better way to do this, to go about this. And I usually try to encourage people to read the passages that talk about spiritual gifts. But then notice, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about spiritual gifts. And 1 Corinthians 14 talks about some of the abuses that come with spiritual gifts. That's why the chapter in between 1 Corinthians 13 is so important. It is the love chapter. It's okay to preach it at weddings, but I actually don't think that's what it's about. I think what it's about is the connection between love and spiritual gifts. And what I would like to suggest is that it is when we love the body and we love the world, we begin to find our spiritual gifts because we begin to see the ways that we are uniquely burdened to love others. And love is what will keep us from abusing any of our gifts. Love is like a constraint. It it opens up and it also kind of constrains. So, as I said, find out what people say. I found out what the scriptures say, excuse me, about spiritual gifts. And then start paying attention to how you're burdened to love. We could just start with Sunday morning. Are you aware that when everything is set up beforehand, it helps people to enter into worship and you feel really compelled to make sure everything's in place? Or are you thinking about coffee and snack after the service and how that helps to uh, helps people to have fellowship and to connect? I want to say hallelujah to the people with those gifts. Um, or are you the one who just loves to love the body of Christ by reading scripture? Do you have a special burden to help little people enter into God's word? Do you long for young adults to discover God in nature and in the written word? Do you get energized by having people into your house so that people can exercise fellowship and study the Bible together? Do you love to teach others about the truths of the Bible? Do you experience deep intimacy with God when you play music that leads the body into worship? Are you burdened? to pray for the people of of God and the world. These are the ways that we begin to discover how we're uniquely given gifts by the Holy Spirit, and they're released when we love the body and love the world. I know I've probably overlooked a lot of the the gifts that are represented here in this very room, Um, but hopefully you get the idea of what I'm saying. We really do find our gifts by paying attention to how we're burdened to love, but also how the body receives our love. And I know that when I was um, even thinking about kind of learning about my own spiritual gifts, I remember it took me a long time to think that possibly teaching could be one of those gifts, because a lot of times when I explain scripture, it just seems so basic. 
It just seemed like, well, of course. But I kept hearing people say, oh, I didn't see that in the word. I, that was so clear. So it took me a long time to connect the dots and to go, oh, maybe this is how people are receiving what I want to give them. Um, but I think this is a wonderful thing for us to think about. So what an amazing day we are celebrating, Pentecost Sunday. The world has been changed because the Spirit was poured out on these 120, and by extension continues to be poured out as we are placed in. Now, I want to also just make another connection. I talked about in the Garden of Eden how there was a, a mandate given to the first humans to extend God's rule and reign throughout the world, and how that was forfeited, and then we saw the disaster of the Tower of Babel. But now, through the Spirit, the gospel is going forward and is accomplishing the same thing. The gospel is going forward and extending God's reign, glorious reign and shalom throughout the world. So hopefully some of the takeaways on this that we will leave today is realizing we have been placed into something so much greater than ourselves. And secondly, we have been given unique manifestations of the Spirit for the proper functioning of the body. There is such diversity and amazing variety, even for the same gift. Two people may have the same gift and their unique personalities allow them to express that gift in very different ways. All of these gifts are working in beautiful harmony to the glory of God. I want to end not so much thinking about what, were they, what could they have expected on that day, but just think about this. Who but the creator God of the universe could have ever created anything as beautiful as the body of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit, sharing the gifts of our Holy Spirit to each other and to a world that is so desperately in need of those gifts? Hallelujah. Hallelujah.